This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Coming up this hour, there's a fight in Norristown over whether or not to save the Gothic Airy Street prison built all the way back in 1854. County officials want to knock it down, but preservationists are battling to save it, and we will dive into the debate. Yes, and there's a new HBO Max documentary. It's called Stand Up and Shout. It follows Northwest Philly high school students for the year as they create original music for an album. The students partner with Grammy-nominated musicians and compose and perform all of the music. And it's a really amazing project. And we've got singer-songwriter Crystal Tightwriter Oliver and student Niambi Goldstein coming in to talk about it. And we'll listen to some of their songs. I'm looking forward to that. I just like Tightwriter. It's a great name. Uh, that's a great it's name a for really a songwriter. Uh, also, the bus stop at 6th and Market Streets here in Philadelphia is being relocated again. Mike Carroll, Deputy Managing Director for Philadelphia's Office of Transportation, Infrastructure, and Sustainability, will join us shortly to tell us what's going on with this unpopular stop. You can also email your questions, studio2 at whyy.org. You can also call us, 888-477-9499. We'd love to hear from you on any of these topics, but first, Cherry, let's talk about something in the news. This is going to shock you. It was very shocking. (laughs) According to U.S. News and World Report, Mm. who apparently, I didn't even know this, compiles a list every year of the best places to retire, seven of the top ten cities to retire in are in Pennsylvania. What? Here they are. Harrisburg. That was number one. Harrisburg? Redding, Lancaster, Scranton, Allentown. Scranton? Pittsburgh, Youngstown. Philadelphia was 13th, just outside what? the top 10. Uh, this is apparently they take into consideration affordability, happiness, health care quality, retiree taxes, desirability, and confusingly, job market ratings. Um, and, and their algorithm spit out seven cities in the Keystone State. I know, you're just stunned. I can see it on your face. Um, yes. <laughs> Our engineer, Al Banks, is stunned. I He's know, in the studio, I, I see Al the control scratching room, his head just, over there. Um... Well, you know, we just talked about how so many people from Pennsylvania and New Jersey were moving down to Florida. And as I matter, we lost thousands, yeah, thousands of people are moving down to Florida. So it was very shocking mm-hmm. to me for retirement. No, mind, mind yeah. you. So it was very yeah. shocking to me that so many people want to be in Pennsylvania. And Pittsburgh, well, by the way, it... was number 10. I was like, it's cold in Pittsburgh. Um, I and, and, and I was very shocked that people want to be here. But I will so say I don't know people hospitals. Do... Yes. That's a big retirement. That's a big thing. Uh, but I don't know if people do. I think they're saying these are the best places to, to retire. retire. It doesn't mean people are actually doing it. Yes. It, it just seems very at odds. It seems like I wouldn't. I can't I think would. if you ask regular people who are looking to retire, whether or not Harrisburg would be the number one <laughs> de- destination. No shade on Harrisburg. No it's shade. our it's our capital city. But been to Harrisburg many times. <laughs> Lovely um, city. Would you retire there? <laughs> the lovely city. They have a little island. You know, in the river, the Susquehanna River, that's very cool. Never crossed my mind that people would retire there, much less that it would be the best place to retire. Well, apparently Harrisburg has a great outdoors and it has Appalachian trails. Access, yeah. State parks and state forests. So consider it. Do Talk the to thing, the wife. Harris, I don't know if she Do the thing. You out of it. <laughs> <laughs> gotta move I, on. I know. Another interesting story. Uh, this one out of New Jersey. Did you you know how 
all newborn babies, they get their heels pricked for mm-hmm. blood tests, right? You just had a baby. Yep. And they test the blood for dozens of disorders. Standard well, thing. They yeah, always standard do thing, yeah. always done. Well, a new lawsuit is accusing New Jersey of storing those samples and using them without informed consent of the parents or child. Now, this is fascinating. I had no idea. Very about fascinating. This. They usually use that um, that blood to screen um, with forty eight hours within forty eight hours of birth for thirty five disorders. In New Jersey, they test for about sixty one, and New Jersey has been storing these samples for twenty three years, and so the parents are suing. Um, they're arguing that storage of these blood samples violates their children's Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. And um, yeah, and and the concern, of course, is that about the lack of consent from the parents as well as the baby and what they can be used for in the future as genetic technology advances. Kind of scary. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And of course, it brings up larger questions about like what information should the government have about you Mm -hmm. from the time of your birth? Obviously, they have some information and, and one of the most important pieces of personal information, your social security number, is assigned to you by the government. So they know some stuff about you. But the question, I guess, is how much should they know and how much biological data should they have? Some of this could be used for good purposes. It can be used for research purposes. It's not necessarily all a bad thing, but it is interesting to get some sunlight on this area so that we understand that this is being stored and we can have a broader conversation about whether And they should tell you. I think at the very least Mm -hmm. they should tell you when they take that blood sample that the whole family, they should let you know that it could be used for something. Because, you know, those sites like 23andMe and other sites that use genetic material to connect Mm -hmm. you with family members, that has been used to to identify folks accused of crimes. Yep. You know, to link that. and Broad uses, potentially. Yeah. And we don't know what this is could be used for. So there you go. Cherry, um. sometimes <laughs> in this business, you have to go from story A to story B, and yeah, there's no logical way to get there. Know. And you just have to say, we're transitioning now to a new story. Hard transition. <laughs> Cherry? Yes. It's National Scrapple Day. What? <laughs> Do you like Scrapple? You know um, what Scrapple is, I assume. Yeah, it looks. It doesn't look good to me, so no. You never tried it? I No. It's I, I, very I've good. seen it. I know my dad loves it. It's Family really members good. love it. You love it. I think it's delicious. So it's a breakfast meat, if you don't know. Basically, they turn a bunch of pig unmentionables into like a pate, and then Mm -hmm. you fry it both sides. And the frying is really what makes it amazing. Um, And I am a big Scrapple fan. I think it's a wonderful part of our local culinary tradition. And I eat it when I get a chance. You've never tried it, and so you say you don't like it. And in fact, what you're saying is, you are ignorant to its taste. I am ignorant to its taste, but I can tell you it looks great to me and I don't <laughs> want to eat it. But the cool thing that I did think was interesting is shout out to Delaware, which produces the most grapple in the world. I interviewed a guy. I didn't who, know that. I interviewed I like, a guy who did Delaware. a whole documentary about Scrapple. It's called Scrapple Road. You can look it up. And I, I learned I that you talking about. I, I learned that through that documentary. <laughs> uh, Delaware, a lot of Scrapple down there, and it comes from the sort of old German Pennsylvania Dutch yeah. tradition. That's where Scrapple emerges from. Oh, no. Let's do one more food story. Yeah. Okay. Well, and this one is one I kind of like. There's good news for some foods for carb lovers. Very interesting story in the New York Times today. It's about a way to make carb-heavy foods like pasta, white rice, potatoes, a little bit healthier. 
So tell me how. Okay. So you know that the reason why they're a problem is because they spike your blood sugar and it can gain lead to weight gain and inflammation. Well, apparently, if you leave it in the fridge mm-hmm. and it gets really cold, the starches will transform into something called resistant starch. And that is actually good for you. Or better for you. Or better for you than just the hot starch that just so you take the rice, hips. Stick, take the rice, yes. cool it down, mm-hmm. reheat it, and magically the rice is better Apparently, for you. Apparently. Um, it also... Uh, can lower your blood sugar. It's good for your gut health, and it could protect you against certain cancers. So there you go. Keep your let this your starches is be cold. The first. best news I have heard in such a long time because I do this all the time. I do too. Rice, yeah. pasta, potatoes. I make a big batch. I put it in the fridge and then I reheat it. And let me give you a pro tip, Jerry. Oh, this is for professional Re- car beater. <laughs> Reheated rice. For breakfast, try it out. Put an egg on it, a little hot sauce. The rice hot crisp, sauce. crisps. You got hot up. sauce in your pocket? <laughs> At my house. I'm telling you, mm. rice for breakfast. And this this is the best news I've heard mm-hmm. in maybe years. Yeah. No, and it, I, I did not know that. I, thank you rice for that. Rice for breakfast. Thank you for that. That's an Avi Wolfman errant tip. Yeah, go ahead. Let's start the next segment with a little history, Cherry. In 1957, Philadelphia opened a sparkling new bus depot near Center, Center City City Hall. It had fancy commissioned artwork, specialized lighting system. The New York Times even called it sumptuous. Ooh. In the 1980s, Greyhound moved its operations to a less glamorous facility in Chinatown. And this year, Greyhound and other carriers ditched the very idea of a station, opting instead to load buses on a busy street corner near the Liberty Bell. That situation created a headache for travelers and a traffic nightmare on Market Street. And so yesterday, the city announced it will move this, quote, curbside station to a less congested street corner near the Delaware River. Here to tell us more about this emergency solution is Mike Carroll, Managing Director for the Office of Transportation, Infrastructure, and Sustainability. Mike Carroll, welcome to Studio 2. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And so, Mike, before we talk about the new station, I got to ask you, why and and was the 6th and Market Street location chosen in the first place? And I ask you with this caveat because I saw folks sort of standing out there with their bags loading up just a couple of weeks ago. And I wondered, why is this here? So what was yeah. the logic for putting it there in the first place? Well, you know, going back to this summer, uh, things, things happened pretty fast on our end. And when we were informed that uh, Greyhound wanted to opt to uh, move away from the Chinatown station and set up, uh, one of the things that we needed to understand is, you know, whether we could put something that was near where they had been. And so we began a process of looking for space and, you know, in a pretty tight time frame, identified that that might work. Uh, and then, you know, we were informed that Greyhound was interested in setting up ticket space nearby i think the thinking was if it was close to uh the chinatown station their passengers would be very familiar with the general neighborhood and it wouldn't be too much of an adjustment for folks to kind of go the other way around the corner or down market uh to catch the bus and so you know our expectations i think uh in terms of the amount of uh, people the volume of of uh, bus traffic uh, were pulled together pretty quickly, and I think in general we can we can admit we were caught off guard uh, by the way things worked out on the ground, and uh, you know immediately started getting feedback that there were some issues that needed to be addressed, and in uh, trying to address that, that's kind of the the path that set us uh, on 
in order to get to where we are right now. And so in about a week, Mike, you're going to move this over to Spring Garden Street and Delaware Avenue, right? And and uh, we have some questions coming in about this new location, mm-hmm. one of which uh, from Clarence says, uh, is wondering whether this new bus stop will have bathroom facilities. So what can you tell us about the access, the accessibility, and the amenities at this new curbside pickup location starting in just about a week? Yeah, we're, we're working on these things, and uh, our hope is that we have as much of this set up as possible next week. Uh, our real goal is to make sure we've got things in place for the Thanksgiving Day weekend. So uh, that's what we're really focused on, to make sure when there's that rush in traffic, uh, we can address these issues. People have cover over their head, a place to wait that's sheltered, and then there's a place for folks who need to use the restroom. Um, so I'll, I'll try and talk through, you, you talk about access. I think uh, the location we've got is is pretty good. Um, we're talking about uh, the focal point being the corner of Spring Garden and Delaware Avenue, or as we name it now, Christopher Columbus Boulevard. Uh, and it is about a thousand feet, give or take, uh, to the east of uh, Spring Garden Market Frankfurt Station. And so we feel like for folks who depend on transit, that's going to be a good option. Uh, people who ride the bus, uh, set the bus, uh, have the Route 43 and the uh, Route 25 that run along Spring Garden. And there's also the Route 57 and the Route 5 that run on Columbus Boulevard. So this location is is pretty rich in public transit options. You know, folks who are used to getting to uh, the the East Market site may have to take uh, different routes. We want people to get familiar with that. There might be some transfers, but, you know, the Market Frankfurt line runs through Center City. It runs the 33th Station. It runs out to West Philly. Uh, you know, it's a 69th Street station, so that's not too bad. You, you've got a, a good access point there. Yeah. Uh, for folks who are being dropped off, you know, you've got the expressway ramp, so that's good, too. So we felt like it was strong from that perspective. And and, and, and let me, yeah, and I, I got to ask a follow-up question to the amenities. And also, because I'm talking safety here, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we have this email from Corinne, who also, uh, she has a safety issue here. She says, are there any considerations of, about people with physical disabilities or small children may, you know, when making the, the decisions about this stop, she said front and spring garden has no amenities nearby besides a gas station. It's basically only accessible by the L stop you mentioned, and it has no elevator or a steep elevator that is often out of service. And it also requires crossing a dangerous major road. Will there be, um, help there or, or anything or and can you address the concerns um, from Corinne here? Yes, yeah, so we're coordinating with SEPTA to make sure that they're prepared for the traffic. Uh, also with the uh, police department from the perspective of just kind of keeping eyes on the ground. Also working with the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation uh, and this is in their service area so they'll be able to help us uh, also keep eyes on the ground. We're looking to supplement you know whatever we have from police or PPA uh, with some, you know, additional security presence there, also to help orient people, provide information and so forth. Uh, as far as ADA is concerned, you know, we'll do our best with SEPTA to make sure that that's addressed for station access. Uh, but then in addition to that, there's good uh, space to work with, much better space to work with in terms of uh, where the buses can load and uh, operate their lift for folks who are using ADA much, much better than the situation we see on the 600 block of Market Street. And then, you know, there's a issue that does come up about, you know, what's nearby, what's in the neighborhood, what amenities folks have. And uh, we will do what we can to make sure 
Uh, people are comfortable. You know, the, the waiting situation is something that will work with the carriers with these companies to work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is that one of the main complaints that we uh, were dealing with in the neighborhood of Sixth Market is that a lot of the businesses felt like, you know, their private enterprises, their investments mm-hmm. were being offered up by, you know, this service uh, that, that really they aren't affiliated with. Right. So, yeah. right. you know, it's a double-edged sword. So uh, before we get you out of here, about a minute left, big picture. This is a temporary solution, right? Big picture, it seems like one of the issues is that curbside service is just cheaper for the carriers, and they don't mm-hmm. want to invest in real permanent facilities. So can the city do something to defray the cost to them, to encourage them, or perhaps build itself an intercity bus terminal in the near future. Yeah, so so as far as defraying the cost, that's a very deep policy uh, conversation. What we what can certainly do and we can uh, sign up for is providing a lot of coordination in order to make sure the process of working through uh, an ultimate solution is thought out. And, you know, I'm someone and a lot of my colleagues have put a lot of time into this uh, you know, going back years to mm-hmm. figure out what would work. And the challenge is there's a lot going on around the city. Um, you know, this is a city that's very compact. The streets are compact. And, um, you know, very thankfully. We but is that the goal, lot. though? Uh, just just before we get out of here, is that the goal sure. to someday have a, a permanent structural terminal? I think that's our goal. Yeah. And we need to work with the carriers to, to meet that goal. Got it. That's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us and and getting us up to speed on this, Mike Carroll. That is Mike Carroll, Managing Director of the Office of Transportation, Infrastructure, and Sustainability here in Philadelphia. What's coming up next, Jerry? Well, we're going out to the Burbs to investigate the debate over the old Airy Street prison in Norristown. And you friends can chime in. Call us 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome on back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman. Aaron, going to cue your visual imagination mm-hmm. here, picture. An old towering building, worn out stone castle like features. Can you see it? Yeah. It's the Airy <laughs> you can <laughs> it's the Airy Street Prison in Norristown, Montgomery County. It stood there since eighteen fifty four, served as a jail until the late nineteen eighties. The architect who designed it was prominent. Many residents love the look of this landmark, but a fight to save the jail has been brewing since the county commissioner announced a plan to spend about a million dollars to knock it down. Preservation advocates have been fiercely trying to protect the building from demolition, and they were dealt a sort of victory this week. We want to talk about why the jail became the center of debate over taxpayer dollars and injustice. And we also want to find out what's going to happen next. Joining us in our Philadelphia studio is Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Kevin Reardon, who's been following this story Kevin, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. By the way, you can chime in on this topic. I already see an email bubbling up mm-hmm. here. Tell us what you think should happen to the Airy Street Prison. Call 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. So, Kevin, all of this started because Montgomery County, which owns the Airy Street Prison, wanted to demolish it. Explain why county officials said 
it was time for this prison to go. The prison's been empty for 40-plus years, and uh, to be honest with you, it wasn't clear to me as I began reporting the story what the hurry was. It seemed as if the county, after 40 years of pretty much just letting it sit, was on some kind of a fast track. Um, And the preservation community, who had gotten my attention, um, was up in arms because they felt as if there had not been any due diligence Mm. on the part of the county, which owns the building, uh, over the years. And so why now? Why did this become so important now? And Do you think you have an answer to that, by the way? Well, I think probably the most eloquent and best-known answer came from the commissioner, uh, Montgomery County Commissioner Ken Kenneth Law, who said that, did I just... Lawrence. 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 Kenneth Lawrence. Sorry, I am yeah. sorry, Commissioner mm-hmm. Lawrence. I knew that was uh, not correct. Kenneth uh, Lawrence made an eloquent um, statement in front of the commission and also in an op-ed that the Inquirer ran. He made a case for not preserving the building because it's, in his words, uh, not something that should be preserved. It has a connection to the over-incarceration, history of over-incarceration and differential sentencing that uh, unjustly impacted black and brown people for decades. Mm -hmm. And the connection is that it it was a jail, not that there was something specific that happened here that was especially representative of that, but just the fact that it was a place uh, where people were imprisoned. Yes, and it was a county jail. It was not a penitentiary like Eastern Mm -hmm. State. But Mm -hmm. Eastern State in Philadelphia very quickly became part of the conversation because a lot of the preservation folks made two points. One, the economic success of Eastern State as a visitor attraction and, of course, all the Halloween stuff. Mm -hmm. But at Eastern State, there is also – there are exhibits, there's information about the injustices Mm -hmm. of the penal system in the United States, the historic injustices. And so the preservation folks began to, taking note of of Commissioner Kenneth Lawrence's eloquent statements about mm-hmm. we don't need to spend taxpayers' money to save this place. Mm-hmm. We can spend that money elsewhere. Uh, they began pointing out that the uh, building, if preserved, would offer the same kind of opportunity to be an educational space as Eastern State has. And Kevin, you know, you you mentioned fast track. That The question was, why now? How fast has this track been, and what sort of due diligence and community discussion has taken place during that time? Well, since uh, August, when I uh, wrote my first story, and I must uh, give a shout-out to um, Rachel Ravina. She's a reporter for the Lansdale Reporter and also for the Norristown Times-Herald. Her coverage has been excellent. So there was a community conversation mm-hmm. sparked by media coverage and, and a change.org petition mm-hmm. and uh, also the coming together of a grassroots movement very quickly. So they began a conversation around this. And the county pretty much was silent except for the statements that 
that Kenneth Lawrence had made. And also uh, Jamila Winder also put out a statement as part of what he had said another about commissioner, another yeah. commissioner, mm-hmm. yes. So um, really all the discussion and all the public events, mm-hmm. including a forum in October that was very well attended and also uh, uh, attracted some political folks, uh, that was where all the conversation was happening. There really wasn't anything coming out of the county at, until the surprise announcement on Monday that they were seeking a pause. So it's sort of on pause for now. I do want to bring in an email from Pat who said, what a sad state of affairs that those who make decisions want to destroy this piece of area history. It is not only a perfect opportunity to tell the story of local justice, but the building itself is a magnificent structure and eminently worth preservation. We have told the folks that it's old, that it kind of looks like Mm -hmm. a castle, but but what is yeah. the preservation argument here, Kevin? Like, what is what is especially interesting or notable about the building? Well, it it makes an impression. It makes a statement. Uh, it, a lot of downtown Norristown has been demolished. There's a good amount of it that mm-hmm. still exists, but this building it's set back from Airy Street, surrounded by a, a, a lawn and then a parking lot on one side. It's unlike any other building around it. It's not like a lot of other buildings, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It does look like a castle. It does have sort of a serious, you know, impressive presence. Even though it's been empty for 40 years, it says this is an important place. And it also says that about downtown Norristown. Mm-hmm. So I think that the architectural heritage of it, which uh, Paul Steinke can talk about yeah. better than I can, um, is another aspect to it. But uh, it it is a building that people have grown up with yeah. in Norristown. People know it's that building. It is a landmark. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's part of why this grassroots effort took off. You mentioned Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring him thing. in. So Paul Stanky is the executive director uh, Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia, which ran a big campaign, bringing a lot of attention to the jail. And we're welcoming him now on the line. Paul, welcome to Studio Two. Hello. Nice to be here. And Paul, I would would love for you to sort of expand on Kevin's discussion about the the significance, the historical significance of this building and why it should be saved. Sure. Well, you know, as Kevin said, it is a prominent presence in the center of Norristown. Uh, It's recognized as a contributing resource to the Norristown National Historic District. Uh, And it was built at the same time as the courthouse across the street, which is undergoing a very uh, careful and admirable renovation uh, financed by the county. Yet uh, they suddenly, over the summer, announced they were willing to sacrifice uh, the prison that was really part of the uh, criminal justice complex that the county built. 170 years ago. So it it took us a lot of us by surprise. Um, And we mobilized uh, along with a very strong and vocal group of local preservationists in Norristown, the Norristown Preservation Society, and other Norristown and Montgomery County residents to make the case to the county that this architectural landmark uh, should not be demolished, but Every chance should be given to find a new use for it as part of a project that the county and the town can be proud of. I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit more about um, 
Ken Lawrence's arguments. And I mean, one of them is a moral argument, but he also makes another argument, which is related to the courthouse right across the street. Um, he argues that, you know, the county um, is investing over $90 million in preserving and restoring their courthouse and bringing it up to 21st century standards. And they're going to preserve um, a large part of the historic nature of that courthouse and spend about $20 million doing that. Um, and, and, and that courthouse and the prison are built by the same were designed by the same architect. How many of these buildings by this architect do you think need to be saved? Or is there an argument to say, hey, the courthouse is being saved. We'll have enough of that facade saved. We don't need the prison as well. Yeah, Yeah, um, you know, I think the answer to that question is that uh, the commissioner's arguments about the injustices uh, that our criminal justice system is guilty of over the centuries are real, but it really isn't fair or right to tie them to a specific building. You know, buildings are inanimate objects. They don't uh, commit these injustices. It's the people who use them uh, over time who have made these mistakes. And I think as we've seen with Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, um, another jail uh, from the same era, Uh, these buildings can be used to tell the story Mm -hmm. of those injustices and the ways in which especially communities of color have been impacted. And if you take those buildings away and remove them from the landscape, Mm. you really lose a teaching tool to get those lessons across. But I mean, that argument, the moral argument aside, there is a building across the street from the same architect with similar design that is being preserved in tens of millions of dollars being invested in that what's wrong with i mean do you need both buildings is my question i think the answer is yes because they were conceived and built at the same time Mm -hmm. uh, to serve uh, a similar purpose and uh, there's no reason why the jail needs to be demolished uh, without you know due diligence i mean the county has now said they will do their due diligence about whether and how the jail can be preserved and incorporated into a new project. The real mistake I think the commissioners were on the verge of making was to just throw the building away without adequate study and without adequate consideration of how this landmark could be preserved Mm -hmm. and incorporated into a revitalized Norristown. And so we're glad now that they're doing that and uh, look forward to the next step. Uh, I just want to note, during this conversation, we made several attempts to include Commissioner Ken Lawrence. He was uh, unavailable to us. I just want to make sure that is clear. also want to read an email from Lars, who agrees with you, Paul. Um, if this was going to use $1 million in taxpayer money to tear down the building, strong community engagement should have occurred from the very beginning. The story about the building representing the incarceration of people of color and why it should be removed rings very hollow as the building ceased being a prison generations ago. However, on that, I will note, uh, Kevin Reardon, it ceased being a prison generations ago. No one has found an adapted reuse for this thing for a very long Mm -hmm. time. It doesn't sound like any private investment is interested here. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, perhaps one of the arguments in favor of the county is that it's been sitting there for a while and no one seems interested in it. Can you fill us a little bit on that history? Well, it's clear that the county hasn't made any efforts in Uh. recent years, perhaps uh, for longer than that, 
there was an effort, grassroots effort, led by uh, an architect um, who was very much in the Doug Seiler, whose office is across the street in mm-hmm. Norristown. And he was very much a part of it. This was at least 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, uh, an effort to uh, get a community consensus around how to repurpose it. And they came up with some ideas. One was for a music venue, for a museum, for some sort of educational, kind of a mixed-use mm. kind of approach. That didn't go anywhere, but that was a worthy effort. And I think they were, meaning the folks in Norristown who are constituents of, you know, are stakeholders in this, they were taken by surprise. Uh, someone, and they have very active community folks up there, mm-hmm. and they are paying attention to what the, the county commissioners are doing and the borough is doing. They saw that money had been set aside for the demolition. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what drove this story into public view. But so the argument, at least from the activists then, is that no attempt was ever made really over 40 years to even drum up interest in this property, mm-hmm. interest in revitalizing it. No, and and I think the, the county has been working with the borough sort of, I don't want to say behind the scenes as if this is some sort of, you know. It's not nefarious. It's yeah. not nefarious. Yeah. But because the, the borough of Norristown is very interested in using at least part of the site for public safety purposes, perhaps for a new fire fire station for the entire borough. And the wisely, the preservation folks uh, have come up with an, a compromise. And that was embodied in the Historic Architecture Review Board decision of last month, the HARB, which decided to, con- you know, said, no, don't demolish this, but said, let's keep ha- the front half of the building, which is the very elaborate visible Mm -hmm. castle like Mm -hmm. which has Mm -hmm. a tree growing out of it so that tells you something about (laughs) how much attention the county's been paying right there's literally a tree growing out and and to save the front and perhaps combine another use that the borough is looking to do on another part of the property and by the way i wanted to just bring in a couple comments we have an email from david at who says it was always our position at Friends of the Airy Street Prison that making history of incarceration harder to see in no way advance social and criminal justice reform. Also, email from Lars who makes the argument that if this was going to, if this, I guess this county was going to use a million dollars in taxpayer dollars to tear down the building, strong and community engagement should have occurred from the very beginning. So to me, it seems like the this is, this is just a need for conversation, mm-hmm. further conversation to happen before will, the building is torn down. Absolutely. And we will have that conversation, I would imagine, in the future. Thank you so much, Kevin Reardon uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer for joining us here on Studio Two. Paul Stanky, Executive Director of the Preservation Alliance for Greater Philadelphia. Thanks to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up next, um, a we're talking about an HBO Max documentary about a school from East Mount Airy. Looking forward to that. This is 
Studio 2, I am Cherry Gregg. Howdy folks, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt, and there is a new HBO Max, no, it's just called Max, I guess, documentary called Stand Up and Shout. It follows students at Hill Freeman World Academy in Northwest Philadelphia as they spend a year producing an original album, all original songs. Now, they do have some help from some professionals in the music industry, mm-hmm. including Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Crystal Tightwriter Oliver. Here is an excerpt from the classroom at the very beginning of the album process. Let's play a quick game. I have a list of titles right here, right? What's the title? Explosion. Explosion. We like that? Explosion. All right. Okay. You're going to tell me all of the words that pop into your head when you think about explosion. I'll go first. Bang. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Boom. Boom. Pow. Oh, I like that. So he said, bang, boom, pow. My thoughts are running wild. I love it. Makes it sound so easy. And this Bang. document. Boom. <laughs> it's, been, it's been caught in my head all day. <laughs> it's an earworm. It's a whole earworm. The documentary, it follows the creative growth of this class of 10th graders from the school. We watch as the students learn to process their emotions and transform the pains of being a teenager through the power of music. And two of the folks featured in the film, they're here with us today. First, Crystal Tight writer <laughs> Oliver Love your name, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Who you thank just you. heard in that clip. Crystal, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Also with us, and we're so lucky to have uh, one of the students featured in the film, one of the songwriters <laughs> featured in the film, Niambi Goldstein, is a talented, and you will hear this soon, talented songwriter and performer. Thank you so much for Thank coming to Studio Thank you for having me. You like that popping collar songwriter. Well, and we're going to play one of your songs later. They are remarkable. Um, but first, uh, Crystal, I wanted you to explain how this whole program works. Like, you get a class of students right at the beginning of the semester. Yes. And you got to take them from – and it's not like the students yeah. are like – music virtuosos right oh no most of them are not musically inclined whatsoever yeah <laughs> so it's a pretty intimidating process so yeah. you got to start and you got to build them up and you have to uh, sort of get them toward the end to do what well the end goal is to create an album together it's a community you know it's an ecosystem um but the biggest thing is you know how do we create this safe space how do we make everyone feel comfortable exposing themselves and really just trusting the people around them to really make some great music and we we myself and the other teaching artists in the class we really try to make sure we take the time to make them feel comfortable we respect the students we listen and we also teach in an amazing way so that they can retain the information and create songs. So, yeah, it's a pretty cool process. It is amazing to watch. It was Thank amazing you. to watch. And I, and I want to sort of talk about your work as an artist and how you tie that to the work you do in the classroom. And I want to do that by playing a clip of a song that you wrote ah. and sang. Uh, could you play it? It's called Love Is. Go Ooh. ahead. <laughs> And so, um, you love this song. I do. <laughs> you love this song. I love this song, and I love the the album "Growing Up Black" by your students. But I want to you you said that you see songwriting as therapy, and yes. I saw that play out in the students. Um, 
including Niambi here, yes. throughout the documentary, how did you translate your own experience to teach them how to take all of that angst that young people have <laughs> and put it into their music? It's so funny. We just had this conversation <laughs> in the hallway. But uh, when I see them, I see myself, to be quite honest. And I remember how nervous I was. And I remember how I... I I remember the mentors that I ended up getting around 17 that really started to help me with the process. So when I'm in the class, you know, my goal is to just help them to understand that no matter what it is they're trying to achieve, no matter whether this song is good or not, you know, when we go in here, it's the same as when we go into a studio. You have to let your guard down. You have to just embrace the process, embrace the people you're collaborating with, and then become what I like to call a medium for the music. You just have mm -hmm. to kind of let it flow through mm -hmm. you because if you try to create, if you try to like control creativity, it'll take you down a, a dark path. You know, it, it won't take you where you really want to go. So um, by giving them certain tools, which I like to call our GPS to get where we're going, you know, by giving them certain tools, I think it makes it a lot easier to open up and to create. And, you know, yeah, long story short, that's it. <laughs> it's a... Uh it's a journey to becoming vulnerable. And you mm -hmm. see oh, yeah. that in, oh, yeah. in the students in the film. I'm wondering if you felt that, Niambi. Did you feel like there was a, a, a breakthrough moment where you were like, I can let people know how I'm really feeling? I definitely felt like that. At first, I wasn't really too sure about doing the project at all. But I don't know. The more that they pushed me, like Miss Crystal and Mr. Thurman and Mr. Majewski, it's like I felt more safe expressing how I felt. I definitely had a breakthrough moment. Even just performing empathy in the studio for them was a yeah. breakthrough moment for and me. And now you do live radio, too. Yeah, <laughs> look at you. Very professional. We came a long way. We came a long way. And I want to play a clip from the song that you performed called Empathy. You actually performed it, um, recorded it with your brother. Yes. And we're going to play a clip and then we'll talk about it. First of all, the song, I'm literally like have little goosebumps from the song. Thank you. Wonderful um, compilation there. Um, talk about the song, what it meant to you sort of writing this song and then performing it with someone you love. Yes. So writing the song, it was just like all my emotions and stuff. It was really um, a ode to the people that I lost. If you, you know, hear it when I was on stage. I actually performed with my grandfather's visual behind me and like mm -hmm. a picture of him. In a documentary, you'll see me holding an elephant. That was his favorite animal. And you know, that was on stage with me. I just feel like this song is just like all like the emotions that a lot of people don't talk about yeah. and everything like that we're kind of taught to just push deep down, just coming out and like spilling out. How did Crystal, as a as a teaching artist, yes. how do you get a young person to the place where they're willing to write about something That's so deep. personal, mm -hmm. so deep? Because, I mean, I, I used to cover education, and even just as a reporter, I could tell you sometimes it's really hard to break that mm -hmm. layer mm -hmm. uh, with teenagers. Yeah. Um, 
I think honestly, there's this level of trust that has to be built, you know, the safe place that has to that, that the students have to find themselves in. And to be quite honest, a lot of it isn't the, the teaching artists, a lot of it is the other classmates, yes. you know, the other classmates that are cheering them on. And when we do free rights that are coming up and exposing themselves, you know, all you need is one brave soul. You know, it's like when you push that one domino and the rest yes. just go, yes. you know, and we we had a couple just bright spots. I remember during class and after that, you could see right away, hands started going up. And when we would call on other students, they were they were less shy. Sometimes they would just ask me to read it. You know, Miss Crystal, can you read my free write? Because I'm a little shy about it but regardless the students would all celebrate each other and I think that's what made it so special because they had that community they had that ecosystem so for educators I think trust trust building a safe space where students can trust you and don't feel like you're placing yourself so high above them that they can't expose themselves and open themselves up so yeah Mm-hmm. And Niamba, you talked about opening up, like people pushing you. What was was there a moment that surprised that you were you surprised yourself during this mm. process? I was surprised when I went in the studio and laid the, <laughs> <laughs> the song down. It really wasn't in my plans. At first I was like, oh, this is gonna be so corny, like I don't know. <laughs> and then like I'm just so grateful and so happy that I went in with the open mind and that I had an open mind Mm. and it just it was great it was great Krista I wanted to ask you something about the film itself which you've had a chance uh, to view I expected based on seeing other films you Mm -hmm. know set in high schools in Philadelphia urban public high schools that it was going to be a story that really focused on adversity and overcoming adversity yeah. and really played into the emotion of that mm-hmm. and what I found watching it is that it wasn't that it was really a celebration of the music and the students and the journey that they went on yes. and they didn't try to sort of you know play with your emotions in that way yeah did you know that's what the film was going to be and and when you saw it did it surprise you at all well, going into it, you know, we didn't even start school that year knowing that we were going to be filming with HBO. Yeah. We showed up to work. You know, mm-hmm. we were there doing what we normally do. So, of course, we didn't know what it was going to be about. I know for um, their their teacher, it's their normal teacher all day, Mr. Thurman, it was very important to him that it wasn't something where we're just focusing on the disparities in the community yep. and things like this. But what I also found out afterwards from the director, Amy Schatz, producer as well, is that she wanted to focus on mental health after the pandemic. Yeah. How were the students feeling? What was their mind state? And just kind of what is the other side of the pandemic look like when these students come back to school? So when you watch the documentary, you'll see we we have our masks on mm-hmm. and we're just coming out of this moment and we get a chance to discover what being in that community in that classroom can really do. So, no, it wasn't about. It wasn't about, oh, all these horrible things are happening around us. It was about what's happening in you, not around you. And then how can you take what's happening in you and put it into this song and create something wonderful along with your classmates? So, yeah. (laughs) It was so human. It was really focused on humanity in a way that that surprised me in a pleasant way, I would say. Yeah, Yeah. I would would piggyback on what Avi said. And also that, you know, I feel like, and and Niambi, you can chime in on this. And then I'd love to hear what, what you think as well, Crystal, because people get, your generation, Niambi, wrong a lot mm-hmm. of times. Yeah, yeah. They think, you know, this is a lost generation. And <laughs> probably they said the same thing about mine when I was your age. <laughs> you know, they all say like, oh, they are so into the violent video, like all mm-hmm. of these stereotypes. But 
there was a young man playing the the Pink Panther. Like, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so many of the students yeah. love jazz. They yes. love jazz. Yeah. yeah, and 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 so just what do you think people get wrong about young people your age and and what they see versus what you really are? I think a lot of times people are just like focused on like the numbers and stuff like that. I just, I feel like they get wrong. Like, we're not just statistics. We're not just our crime rate. It's real people. Even the people that have, you know, lost their life to violence and stuff like that. They were real people. They liked listening to jazz and they had dreams and stuff like that. So I feel like that's what they get wrong. I feel like they um, dehumanize our junior generation yes. <laughs> a lot. So I just feel like, I just, we're just, we're young. We're trying to figure it out. We might not all make the best decisions, but I feel like we all deserve a chance. Mm. Yeah. Anything to add on that, Crystal, as we get ready to wrap up? I mean, look at how wonderfully she, she stated that. <laughs> Dehumanization was exactly the word that was in my head. So, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of times we look at our youth and we look at the sound bites that we're hearing and we look at social media and we look at videos or whatever, whatever, especially in the Brown community, whatever we're being portrayed as. And we think that applies to the entire gambit and it's not true, you know, and I can attest to that from being in these schools for over 10 years. It's just like these students are intelligent. They deserve our respect. These generations nowadays command it because mm-hmm. it's like, I'm not even going to inter- interact with you if you don't show me some type of respect. Yeah. And I respect that, you know? <laughs> yes. So, I, yeah, I think that we get it wrong a lot of times by thinking that just the little clips that you see here and there are, rep- are represent the whole community. We're not a monolith, yeah. you know? I love that. And John Legend attached his ex- name to this, one of the executive <laughs> yes. producers. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> awesome, pretty awesome. Uh, Stand Up and Shout is the name of the film. It's streaming now on Max. Check it out. We want to thank our guests, Crystal Tightwriter Oliver, Grammy-nominated songwriter. Great to have you with us on Studio 2. And Niambi Goldstein, so nice to have you as well. Thank Thank you you to you you both. Yes, and that wraps up our show for today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. And we're closing the show today with Stand Up and Shout, the signature name of the documentary, I'm Cherry Gregg, and this is Studio 2 in Philadelphia. I'm here with... Avi Wolfman-Aaron. So long. 